Thanks for checking out the Good Morning Hamilton podcast. I'm Rick Samprin. What is the root cause of the recent spate of collisions involving pedestrians in Hamilton? Ontario politicians are being urged to focus on mental health and addictions care in their election campaigns. Are we going to see COVID booster shots replace the annual flu shot? Nearly half of Canadian moms are reaching their breaking point. Your summer fun may be shelved due to rising gas prices and introducing the new Doctor Who. The GMH podcast starts now. This is the Good Morning Hamilton podcast on 900 CHML. An outstanding columnist has written an outstanding column in the Hamilton Spectator. Pedestrians are unsafe because drivers are selfish. And I couldn't agree more with our next guest here on Good Morning Hamilton, Lorraine Summerfield, a contributing columnist with the Hamilton Spectator and many other publications. Lorraine, how are you? I'm good. How are you? Not too bad. Um, how selfish are drivers? Oh, I in my other life, like this is motherload this column, but I write it in the car industry, in the auto industry, and I write about this frequently, and I get lambasted for it every time, and I did on this as well. Drivers are in control of a loaded weapon, and when people say, oh, pedestrians need to be looking and need to be doing stuff, the onus is on the driver. You're the one who can kill people. And if you're overdriving, your lights are going too fast or you run around corners and you don't stop, it's a problem. It's a massive problem. And we know people are dying on our streets. It's happening all across North America. We don't care enough to protect the most vulnerable users of our roads. And it's wrong. It's so wrong. Do we just take driving for granted, do you think? Absolutely. It's easy. Point and shoot. Yeah. You push a button and off you go. It's a, a child can literally do it. It's, it's not tough. But I don't think people give enough respect to the fact that driving requires 100% of your attention, not your phone, not your music, not your coffee. Driving itself is a very complicated brain skill. So physically, it's not difficult, but it involves every level of your thinking. And you have to keep this front and center. You have to be focused on the road. You should never look away from the road. You shouldn't look at your passenger when you're talking to them. Yet we all know someone And it's so uncomfortable because they're looking at you when they're driving and you're like, ah, stop. And you see them doing it in movies. It's like, cut it out. We just, we take it for granted and it's costing people's lives. And we just, we don't care. We just don't care. Added to the mix too are more and more bigger vehicles. And that is really hindering, I think, our acceptance of those who are on sidewalks and crosswalks and whatnot. And maybe that invincibility that... Get out of my way. I'm driving a big SUV or a big pickup truck. Study after study proves that people get more aggressive when their vehicles get bigger and higher. And all of us will say, oh, remember when we were kids, your mom said to make eye contact with the driver before you stepped off the curb? Good luck. With tinted windows and these massive hoods and bumpers that are so high, good luck to a kid trying to make eye contact with someone who can't see them either. We keep putting cars ahead of everything else and we're we're building unlivable cities and it's it's going the wrong way and i can't believe people defending this it just blows my mind what does it say about our society that we just seem to be in a rush all the time too and we just don't care about each other i i think there's a kind of i don't know we we believe we're entitled to this we're a huge problem with entitlement at many levels of different things it's not just cars but we think I drive this expensive car or this big car, and if you crash your grocery cart into somebody, the first thing you do is say, I'm sorry. In your car, you're on the horn saying, get out of my way. You're angry if a pedestrian doesn't cross fast enough for you. They're out in the rain of the elements, yet you still 
are putting your thing as a priority over everyone else's. We don't do this face-to-face, but we do it when we're in these cocoons of steel that make us feel invincible. And the big, heavy, heavy vehicles, you are protected. You, the safety ratings are amazing, but only for the people inside those vehicles. They're an absolute menace to everyone else on the road, and we have to start putting the most vulnerable users first, not last. Our guest on Good Morning Hamilton on 900 CHML, Lorraine Sommerfeld, is an auto columnist with Driving.ca, the mother load column uh, in the Hamilton Spectator, wrote a great uh, op-ed piece in the spec. Pedestrians are unsafe because drivers are selfish. What do you make of the rash of recent collisions involving pedestrians in the city? It breaks my heart, and I'm not saying that lightly because it doesn't have to be this way. And when I read about it's oh here I'm gonna cry. I, I I can't believe how little value we put on people's lives because they're not driving a car. And we already have pretty badly trained drivers, we know that. But people don't take it seriously and then someone dies and they go, Oh, and then we wait for the next headline. It has to stop. We we can't keep punishing people because they choose not to drive or because they can't drive. And we have to stop rewarding morons who because they have access to the credit or can buy a monstrous pickup or they just are lousy drivers, they don't get free reign from this. You don't just get to keep, you know, plowing people down and getting away with it. And we go, well, that's the way it is. Streets are like that. No, we we have to consider our most vulnerable people. Everyone's a pedestrian. I I don't know why we're arguing about it even. Um, Everyone's a pedestrian at some point. We used to bike to school. I, I wouldn't let my kids bike to school. The roads are crazy. Yeah. And, the fighting between cyclists, pedestrians, and motorists don't... Oh, I can always write that for clickbait, but... <laughs> <laughs> I, I've made yeah. the suggestion in the past that I think... I, I really do think we should retest drivers. And, hey, I'm a driver. I, I wouldn't like to go through the process, but I think it's very much needed. It is. There's no political will. Um, because even at 80, we retest, and 80-year-olds are angry yeah. about that. They're really angry because they're worried about losing their license. So I say to family, set them up for independence, even if that's a possibility. But it costs money to do retesting. Right now, the Ford government, you should see what the driver's test is. I went with a kid, and he took me on the route, and I videotaped it. It was got on the highway and got off the highway. That was it. There was no parking. There was no stop signs, no intersections, nothing. That was the test now because they're trying to push stuff along because it's, you know, COVID it up. And I'm going, that's that's not where you start skimping. This is crazy to me. So retesting would be good. They're not going to do it because voters will go, you're not going to retest me. So no politician has the um, whatever you want to call to do something like that to make our roads safer from that perspective. I know they won't. There's no way. That's unfortunate. Well, it it starts with us behind the wheel, that is for sure. Lorraine, really appreciate the time today and uh, be safe on the roads. Thanks, you too. That is Lorraine Sommerfeld, columnist with Driving.ca, the Hamilton Spectator, wonderful column in the spec a couple of days ago. You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML. The CMHA, Canadian Mental Health Association, is urging political parties to include mental health and addictions care in the province's pandemic recovery. As we know, we're in an election campaign. Voters in this province will go to the polls on June the 2nd. We haven't heard much about mental health and addictions care. Or really health care in general. It's all, hey, pandemic recovery. We're getting out of the last couple of years. Here's our vision for the future. We have a number of things that we're going to tackle. But we haven't heard a lot about mental health and addictions. Similar to 
you know, the the education platforms. And I know the parties, it, it's kind of funny. We did we did uh, the call out to, uh, hey, where's our where's the plan to improve education in this province? And the next day, I think it was the liberals who went out and said, hey, here's our education platform. Probably a coincidence, but still, maybe we can do the same for those fighting the good fight to improve mental health and addictions care. One of those individuals is Sue Phipps. She is the CEO of the CMHA here in Hamilton and joins us now on Good Morning Hamilton. Sue, good morning. Good morning. Thank you for having me. Thanks for coming on. We know that uh, COVID recovery is one of a a handful of major election issues. But as I said, we haven't heard a lot about mental health care and addictions care. Is it because it's not a sexy topic? Well, I think it's a pretty sexy topic. (laughs) (laughs) No, I I really don't know why, because, you know, nearly 80% of Ontarians expect that the province is going to be in a mental health crisis once the pandemic is over. So, you know, we at CMHA Hamilton and across the province and, and, you know, the country actually really believe that this needs to be an important topic, you know, in this political in this next provincial election. So, you know, we're really looking to ask people to support political parties that prioritize mental health and addictions going forward as part of pandemic recovery. Polling that you've done indicates that nearly 80% of the people in this province expect Ontario to be in a mental health crisis once the pandemic is over. We're definitely closer to the end of the pandemic than the start. Um, So is there a surge of uh, this mental health crisis on the way? Can you see it on the horizon? Absolutely. Like, we're already noticing this. The demands on our system really exceed, you know, the amount of resources that we currently have. And, you know, over um, during the pandemic, one in four sought help for mental health challenges, and that's up from one in 10 two years ago. So that's a significant increase. And, you know, we're seeing huge increases in crisis calls. For example, CMHA Waterloo Wellington had a 40% increase. And there's over um, 3,670 people on a wait list for mental health and addictions care in the Waterloo-Wellington region. CMHA Hamilton, we also have, you know, a two-year wait list for our um, case management services, which is that intensive support that people with serious mental illness and substance use really need to get, you know, back on track and, and reintegrate into the community. You know, many of them have faced hospitalizations and, you know, the emergency services and so forth, too, have really been, you know, finding that people are in, in mental health crisis. So, you know, investment is so important. And this has to be long-term investment, right? Not just time limited, because, you know, oftentimes we hear the government is putting money into mental health and addictions, but it's just for singular new services. But we need the services that we have now in place that are working, you know, what that people are using. We need those to, you know, expand and we need more money to cover infrastructure and rising operating costs and salaries. What we're finding is we're losing some of our um, mental health and addictions workers because of burnout. So comparatively, like 61% of um, our workers are reporting that they're feeling burned out compared to 66% of nurses. So very close to nurses. And we're hearing that all the time about nurses. And so, you know, we're worried about our staff resigning because of burnout and because they're not getting salary increases. Like many of our organizations haven't had increases in five to 10 years. So we're really looking at like a, an 8% increase in base budget funding this year. And what will that money be used for? Is that just infrastructure? Is that programming? Is that hiring more people? Is it all of the above? 
it's all of the above. It's retaining staff, right? Um, because they also need their salaries to have increases, you know, annually in order to be able to afford inflation, right? The way that other healthcare workers and other healthcare jobs are getting, you know, we're finding they're leaving for better paying jobs. And, and we have such amazing, committed staff who want to do this work and are so good at it. And yet, you know, they can't stay for their own personal reasons, right? So, so definitely all of the above. Our guest on Good Morning Hamilton on 900 CHML, Sue Phipps, the CEO of CMHA in Hamilton. We're talking about uh, urging the political parties to include mental health and addictions care in their uh, electioneering as they're uh, pining for votes up until the June 2nd vote. You mentioned uh, people in Hamilton facing a two-year wait list for mental health services. That's mind-boggling. Two years. Yeah, it's it's absolutely unacceptable. It is unacceptable. And we know, right, that early intervention is the key to turning things around for people. So when they wait on that wait list and they can't get the support that they need, they're only getting worse, right? They're not, not necessarily getting better without that support. So it is very, very concerning. And that has to be one of the most important issues for this campaign, you know, for people who are suffering, that mental health and addictions is prioritized. I would imagine a lot of those people on that wait list are now children and youth because we've seen their mental health, um, uh, you know, just go sky high during the pandemic because of, well, various factors that we've we've all been through. That's absolutely right. Yeah, they've they've basically predicted that there's about a 92 day wait list for intensive treatment for children and youth. So, you know, that's that is too long. Right. Like that's a long time to put your life on hold while you wait for service just to, you know, improve your mental health so you can continue on in your life. It's it's just not right. Well, Sue, let's hope they are listening. And uh, if not, we'll make them listen and hopefully they can take some action. Thanks for your time today and uh, enjoy the rest of your day. Yeah, thank you so much for having us here. That is Sue Phipps, CEO of the Canadian Mental Health Association, Hamilton Branch. You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML. With more than 5 billion people now around the world having received a COVID-19 shot, vaccine makers are shifting gears a little bit. Uh, Companies like Pfizer and Moderna now planning for a smaller, more competitive booster shot market. Which brings us to the question, will COVID booster shots become an annual thing? And will they replace the flu shot or will they go kind of hand in hand? Thomas Tenkate is a professor at the School of Occupational and Public Health at Ryerson University and joins us now. Thomas, good morning. How are you? Uh, Good. Thanks, Rick. Thanks for having me. Are annual COVID boosters going to be a thing? I think the question or the answer is maybe yes, maybe no. (laughs) At this stage, we're still really trying to understand what the longer term effectiveness of of the vaccines are. And whereas my sense is it probably they probably will be they'll be you know, they'll be on offer. But uh, the question is how many people actually take them up. So then the then the question is how effective are they really if you know, not many people take them up. So 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 I think my sense is that there will be uh, some some level of, uh, you know, COVID uh, sort of annual sort of uh i suppose i'm not sure if we'd call it an actual booster because it just depends on how uh how much the the uh the dominant variant is different to the previous year's variant so so i think uh overall my sense is that they'll probably be available uh but 
you know, it just depends on how many people take them up for, for whether or not they'll be, a, you know, an effective measure or not. Yeah, my guess is the people who will want these COVID booster shots or whatever they're going to be called is Mm. going to be confined to probably an older demographic, especially those at high risk. I think that's going to be kind of the sweet spot. Yeah, yeah. So so I was looking at sort of figures for who gets the flu shots. And like Canada's goal is 80% of the adult population, you know, so eight in in 10 people. But we know that, you know, that doesn't happen. It's roughly around 40% of adults each year get the flu shot. Uh, and but uh, something it's sort of roughly seventy percent or more in the, of, of seniors get it. So so again, it's you know it depends on the the demographics, like you said. So you know if we use that as a as a as a benchmark, that you know I would think that people who are usually getting the flu shot would probably also get the uh, the COVID shot. Uh, and so if that's the case, then you'd have to say, well, is there a is it possible to have them as as just the you know the, the one one vaccine uh, and but then it also depends on you know the timing of of when the the seasons are uh, so flu season is usually you know in the winter months say starting in November finishing in March so that it would just depend on whether or not that's also going to correspond for a peak time for for COVID infections as well. Our guest on Good Morning Hamilton on 900 CHML, Thomas Tenkate, professor at the School of Occupational and Public Health, and I, and I guess it's now Toronto Metropolitan University, as Ryerson has gone by the wayside. Could annual COVID boosters replace annual flu shots, or is it likely we're just going to have both? I, I would think that we there, there'll be the need for both, but then then if we're going to have to have if we're going to have both then the question is will can you combine them into one into one dose so uh, you know there are there are other, are other vaccines that that uh, uh, provide protection against multiple multiple uh, sort of adverse conditions so so i think uh, an outcome so so i think that's you know that would be the way to go is can we you know uh, you know, there's triple antigen and there's various other ones that uh, other vaccines that that provide against uh, multiple multiple things. So so yeah, so so that would be the way to go is to can we can we uh, create a, a, a some you know a, a double uh, something one one dose that gives protection against both. As we know, flu vaccine makers look at their batch each year and they try to match the flu strain that's circulating. You know, whatever happens in the southern hemisphere, you know, uh, physicians and researchers here say, OK, we're going to tackle it uh, w- with this uh, batch this year. Can this possibly be done with a COVID booster? Hmm. Yeah, I, I definitely think that I'd be able to sort of have a uh, do that. The, you know, the, given the way that the, the, the COVID vaccines were developed and you know the speed in which they were developed and, and the processes they were using I, I definitely think that once you know once they have a good handle on what the what the uh, the, the genetic makeup is of the the uh, the dominant strain uh, dominant variant uh, then you know and, and you know and say with the flu it, you know it sort of travels around the world and so so you know in one part of the world they, they sort of get they understand what it is and then they they build the the, the, the vaccines based on that and it, as it travels around the world the that that vaccine gets rolled out my sense is that we you know there's this so likely likely similar situation for covid and so so we can i think get in front of it and 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 have uh, we have the technology to be able to create the uh, whatever the the latest uh, the vaccine for the for whatever the latest variant is re- relatively quickly I'm interested to see how they uh, tackle this in uh, the years to come. Thomas, always appreciate your time. Thanks for joining us and enjoy your day.
Yeah, thanks, Rick. Have a great day. You too. That's Thomas Tenkate, professor at the School of Occupational and Public Health with Toronto Metropolitan University. You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML. There's a new survey out for the Canadian Women's Foundation, and it is found that nearly half of moms, 48% of mothers, are reaching their breaking point due to the pandemic. For dads, that number's 39%. Let's dive into this topic. Maureen Dennis is a content creator, a spokesperson, on-air speaker, part of We Welcome, and joins us now on Good Morning Hamilton on 900 CHML. Maureen, good morning. How are you? Good morning. Thank you. How are you? I'm I'm pretty good. It's been a, uh, a tough go for parents, that's for sure, over the last couple of years. We've had COVID, uh, working from home, daycare challenges, virtual school, masks, vaccines, uh, subdued celebrations, family infighting in some cases, I'm not sure how parents are still together. Yeah, no, it's a it's a global problem, honestly. You know, there was a study also that came out that said twenty five. There's been a twenty five percent increase in the prevalence of anxiety and depression worldwide. So, it's um, you know, it's it's kind of scary. It's definitely um, you know, burnout is a legit thing, but it's not something as a parent you can't just resign from that job. You've got to keep going. So, you know, how do you do that? Yeah, the, the term breaking point to me means, you know, that a parent has had enough, like they've hit the they've hit the wall. How do they deal with that? What are some of the things they can do? Well, you know, it's really, um, it's, it's just fatigue and exhaustion and, and not being able to see how to um, change the situation you're in. So some of the most simple things you can do are really, you know, lean into your village of people, talk to your friends. Um, Obviously, there's a lot of people, you know, dealing with it in their own way. Usually, you know, moms um, put themselves last on the list, um, and we need to sort of start to change that. We need to really value self-care, and that can come with taking the time to, you know, go for a coffee, pick up the phone. You need to have that human connection with somebody else who can help you and understand. It could be about really taking that break and, you know, trading off with another parent to, uh, to take their kids and then they take yours. Um, honestly, it could be as simple as taking that beat when you're feeling very, very frustrated and just at your wit's end. Just say to your kids, you know what, guys, I need five minutes. Just, you know what? What, put on the screen time, whatever you need, go take five minutes to yourself, go lock yourself in the bathroom for five minutes and, and really just take that moment for yourself to calm down and to really, you know, sort of um, that take that moment of self-care. If you can do the things, make t- like schedule, make time for the things that bring you joy, could be as simple as going for a 20-minute walk. Um, making sure that you really do take care of yourself that way is really one of the most important ways of staying positive and not reaching that sort of burnout, that breaking point, um, you know, on a daily basis. Yeah, I was just going to ask, how important is it to do it on a daily basis? Because you might have a great Monday and a, and a pretty good Tuesday, and then Wednesday, you know, the poop hits the fan and you've you've reached your breaking point again. How important is it to take advantage of that alone time or me time on the Monday and Tuesday as well? Absolutely. If you can get on a schedule where that is part of your day, it could be just, you know, disconnecting a little earlier, not, um, you know, not scrolling through any sort of social media and whatnot, you know, and really filling your head with more negative or judgmental or feelings of not of, you know, 
inadequacies that 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 can really bring out it can be just you know maybe pick up a book or read something and get get out of your own head it could be about disconnecting from some of the people that uh you know really bring that out in you focus on the people who bring out positive things in you not people who are toxic to or make you more anxious you know and that that can be you know really hard to distance from a friendship um or a relationship that you know, you've had for years, but it's not good for you mentally. I mean, most of it comes from concern over kids' education and mental health, which are, you know, absolute legit concerns. So, you know, what can you do to alleviate some of that? Do you need to speak to someone about your child's, um, you know, catching up on something that they, you know, are falling behind in? Or how can you role model and help them find joy and have that self-care themselves? You know, these are these are important things that kids need to learn to do um, to put themselves first as well. Maureen Dennis is our guest, content creator, spokesperson, on-air speaker, part of We Welcome. You can check her out, MaureenDennis.com. And we're talking about the uh, stresses that go along with, uh, uh, you know, major life events like a pandemic and, uh, you know, vaccines and daycare challenges, virtual schools, and a new survey for the Canadian Women's Foundation finding that 48% of moms uh, are reaching their breaking point, 39% of fathers are at that limit. The survey also found that 39% of moms Moms are struggling to keep up with work demands. That's up from 28% last year. And 37% of mothers are more likely to put their careers on the back burner to manage things on the home front. That compares only 19% of, of fathers. Number one, guys, we got to step up. Number two, there's a lot of pressure, maybe more so than ever, on mothers these days with careers and kids and family. And now throwing a pandemic, uh, it, it's tough. It's really hard. And, you know, for parents who have had their kids home and were trying to work, it really, it's almost, you know, one of my friends sort of said it feels like PTSD to, to have the threat of them coming home again. And she's like, not that I don't love my kids, but being in that situation again really brings out that anxiety again for her. You know, she she can't fathom um, doing, going through that ever again. And so, you know, you know that that's a level of, of um, stress that is constantly hanging over parents. That are we going to have to do this again? Yeah, that's a and, great way to put it. You know what I mean? So, you know, the, there's no way of knowing. We None of us would have guessed that the last few years would ever have turned out the way they are. You know, I, like I said, if you can if you can really sort of look forward to things, we've got better weather coming, we've got summer coming, the kids are going to be out of school, or there are little things that you can start to think about that are going to make you look forward to the next day like you were saying you know get through that next wednesday you know is there is there something coming up can you plan to go to a park with some other kids burn off some of that energy so that you can you know kind of have that time to yourself like little things every day can really make a huge difference especially if you're also stressed about work because you're trying to be all those things and as a mother you're not going to be perfect at all those things every day you know you're going to be a great employee one day and you're going to be a great mom the next day it's a balance of you know how do you how do you keep that going um, that really stresses moms out great tips from maureen dennis maureen thanks for the time and uh, enjoy your day Thank you. You too. That is Maureen Dennis, content creator, spokesperson, on-air speaker. We welcome. Check her out, MaureenDennis.com. You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML. A new survey is out that shows rising gas prices are going to put a damper on your summer travel and fun in this province. Say it ain't so.
Michael Majernik is a senior manager of communications at the Tire and Rubber Association and joins us now on Good Morning Hamilton. Michael, how are you today? I'm excellent. Good morning. Track did a uh, recent survey and you uncovered a telling scenario when it comes to summer travel. What did you find? Yep. Well, um, we run our survey every year, but this time we focused on the gas prices and how it's going to affect our summer driving. So our survey found that big majority of Ontario drivers are planning to stay closer to home this summer. And uh, almost two thirds of Ontario drivers are, are saying that they're planning to cancel or limit their, their road trips and summer driving due to the financial stress. You also found that an overwhelming number of respondents are really pessimistic about where gas prices are going to be going in the future. That's correct. Uh, you know, most of the Ontarians, 82%, in fact, are expecting the gas prices to remain at these levels or going up. Well, that's bad news. There are some things that motorists can do as well to save money on fuel, and they can start with their tires. What should they be doing? What advice do you have for our listeners? Well, the focus of our survey is always about how people deal with their tires, how they maintain them, and uh, while Ontarians are on board with, you know, they know that uh, that uh, you know, maintaining proper tire inflation is essential to the vehicle safety, 96% in fact, uh, 94% are, are, you know, um, know that setting your tires to the right pressure saves fuel and 73% recognize that it's good for the environment to do so. But it also seems that they're lacking the experience and the, the, the know-how how to inflate their tire, tires properly. Uh, you know, only 26% of Ontarians measure their tire pressures monthly, which is recommended by the tire makers because of the fluctuations in the, in the weather and you know, changing, uh, changing temperatures. 62% didn't know that you are supposed to measure tire pressures when the tires are cold, which means after a short ride or when the car has been stationary, because after, after, if you drive for a long period of time and then you check your tire pressure, the tires are warm and your PSI is off. So your tire pressure inflation is going to be off by you know, two, three, four PSIs. So again, you're overinflating or underinflating your tires and you're not getting the best fuel economy or most out of your tires. And also 38% actually refer to the tire pressure that's stamped on the side of the tire, which is the maximum tire pressure for this tire under load. So most of these people are basically overloading the tires. So to, to find the proper tire pressure for your tires, it's, it's, uh, you can find this on the sticker on the side of your driver's door or in your car manual, not on your tires. Great points, Michael. Thanks for the time today and uh, safe travels for yourself as well. Thank you. That is Michael Majernik, Senior Manager of Communications with the Tire and Rubber Association, with some details of their new survey that found that 64% of Ontario drivers planning to cancel or limit their road trips this summer. That's that's sad news. We want to get out and enjoy this great weather that we're having. Uh, hopefully you'll be able to do that at least closer to home. You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML. Doctor Who fans are going bonkers in a good way, I think, I hope. Shuti Gatswa is the new doctor in Doctor Who, and some might know the name from the great Netflix show Sex Education. He plays a phenomenal character on a phenomenal show, and he's now the new doc in Doctor Who. Tony Jordan is with Doctor Who Appreciation. Appreciation Society and joins us now on Good Morning Hamilton. Tony, how are you? Good morning, Rick. How are you? I'm fantastic. What do you think of this choice? Are most Doctor Who, Doctor Who fans happy? I think there's an overwhelmingly positive response. I think it's rather exciting because it, it, it's come out from left field. 
and I think that's that's a big plus. I think Russell T. Davis has done a blinder with this. We recently saw the first woman take over the iconic role. Now we have a black person playing the doctor. It's great to see the producers, like Russell T. Davis, uh, take this franchise and make it more inclusive. It's been happening for many years now. The current uh, actor who plays the master is of uh, Sasha Darwin. He's of Indian descent, so... Hey, the world is the world is crazy. Uh, it's got lots of different races, and why shouldn't they be in Doctor Who? Exactly. How do you think Jodie Whittaker did in the role? I think she's played it really well. I think she's been let down at times by some of the scripts, but then in all eras of Doctor Who, you have uh, good and bad, and I think everyone's very excited about the uh, centenary special, which we'll be getting to see this autumn. So what are you expecting from that? Well, we know that at least two former companions are back. We know that the Master is back. We know that the Daleks are back, the Cybermen. So it's going to be, it's going to be bonkers, basically. <laughs> in, a, in a good way. I, well, I sincerely hope so. Uh, Russell uh, sort of dropped, uh, in one of his interviews on Sunday, he dropped uh, the news that it's going to be a 90 minutes long, which would be the longest single episode since Doctor Who came back in 2005. Wow, interesting. Uh, Tony Jordan is our guest on Good Morning Hamilton on 900 CHML. Tony is with the Doctor Who Appreciation Society, and I was doing a little bit of research uh, last night again this morning. I I forgot that the original Doctor Who started in 1963. This show's been around for eons. It has indeed. So next year is going to be the uh, 60th uh, anniversary. It only seems like yesterday that we had the 50th anniversary, but yeah, it it, it was um, the BBC dropped it from 1989 to 2005 apart from an american movie that was made in uh, 96 but it's 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 limitless the, the, the potential is you can go anywhere anytime do whatever you want to do so it's a perfect format really when did you catch the doctor who bug uh well i i i'm getting on in age and i i certainly used to watch it in william hartnell's era which was the first doctor so from from the early mid 60s basically and what uh, it's, it's stuck with me ever since yeah what grabbed you what what uh, attracted you to the show as a young child watching it with my mother on a uh, early on a saturday evening there was nothing else like it on telly and then the daleks appeared after a few weeks and everyone was hooked and they were getting massive viewing figures and yeah it never sort of never quite left me <laughs> do you have a, a highlight during the show's run single thing well I, my favorite story is one called the seeds of doom which is from 1976 and and uh, the doctor then was the wonderful tom baker who has for a long time been my favorite but mm. every doctor has got people who who love them and i don't have a problem with any of the doctors they're all great all different but for me tom he did it for seven years and he he just nailed it so with shuchi gato as the new doctor in doctor who what amazing adventures do you expect uh, he's going to get into I think we're going to be in for something very different because BBC has always made Doctor Who and it will still be uh, coming through BBC Studios, but this is being made by Bad Wolf Productions and Sony Pictures are now the majority uh, shareholder in that. So I'm expecting the technology to be used, a bit like the um, the LED walls that they use for things like The Mandalorian. I think it's going to, it's going to look really, really amazing. Are you expecting much different storylines, maybe a riskier storyline? Uh, well, I think, I think he's going to aim for the family, um, family demographics, hmm. uh, Russell T. Davis, like he did back in 2005 when he brought the show back. Uh, I, it's it's going to be, I think what he'll want to do is probably come in with some new monsters. There has been a lot of recurring monsters. Maybe it's time for a fresh start with uh, fresh dangers for the Doctor to face. For those who have never watched an episode of Doctor Who, what are they missing? Uh, excitement, fun, 
thrills, humor, everything you would ever want to see. Sounds like a pretty good show. Tony, appreciate the time. Thanks for joining us and enjoy the uh, the next season coming up. Will do, Rick. Thanks a lot. That is Tony Jordan, Doctor Who Appreciation Society. Uh, this fan base is jacked, and they should be. Shuti Gatwa is a great actor. And again, if you've ever watched the uh, Netflix series Sex Education, again, not for the kids, a little crude at times, but it's a great show, and he plays a incredible actor. And I think he'll do very, very well as the Doctor in Doctor Who. And yeah, I forgot, it, it originated way back in 1963, and its original run went to 1989. Took a bit of a brief spell off the air, and then came back in the mid-2000s, and uh, well, away it went once again. Thanks for listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast. You can listen to the show live weekday mornings from 5.30 to 9 on 900CHML and online at 900CHML.com. The Good Morning Hamilton podcast is available on Apple Podcast, Google Podcast, and wherever you get your favorite podcast. I'm Rick Samprin. Thanks again for listening, and don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. It's free, so you never miss an episode, and make sure you rate and review.